Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I go by the name of David Breer, and today on the show, I'm joined by the best-selling author, best-speaking speaker, and of course, the non-executive director of 11FS, Chris Skinner. Say hey, Chris. I always said, I'll be back. (laughs) And you were. I think you've literally been all the way around the planet since the last time we spoke, so yeah. Several times. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Next up, and back by popular demand, we have our favourite neighbour and insider in all things business, business insider reporter, Sarah Kachansky. Say hey, Sarah. Good evening. Thanks for coming back. And next up, and making his first FinTech Insider News debut, we have Andrew Ellis, who is the Head of Strategy and Innovation for Commercial and Private Banking for the Royal Bank of Scotland. Welcome aboard, Andy. Say hey. Afternoon, everyone. Also making his FinTech Insider debut is Samir Chisti. Is that how I should be saying that? That's close enough. Close enough. Thank you. I appreciate your sort of politeness on that one. Uh, Founder of Street On Partners. Uh, Great to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Delighted to be here. Just before we start the news, 11FS actually have a little bit of a news of our own, which if you didn't catch this week, we opened up our first office outside of the UK. So this is sort of marketing our expansion, which we're hugely excited about. Spearheading this move for us is the summer signing of Sam Mal. So Sam, previously of NTT Data and former host of FinTech 5, will be joining us as the managing partner for Americas. Super, super excited about this. Lots more to come. Lots more podcasts to come up and lots more interesting things afoot. Right, that's enough about patting ourselves on the back. Let's see what's happening in the news. So first up this week, we have quite an interesting one on fintech finance. I think probably out of all of the news items, this one's the one that's going to be running longest. So this is Tandem Bank Acquires Harrods Bank. Wow. Like twists and turns of the stories of challenger banks in the UK. I did not see this one coming. What do you guys think? Well, I don't think anybody saw this one coming. I'll be completely honest with you, except maybe um, Steve O'Hare on TechCrunch, who said he'd heard about it in June and dismissed it as, you know, wild rumor. And if he dismisses it as wild rumor, then you can see what the rest of us may have done. Um, it's really, really interesting. There are so many questions here. You know, they, they didn't get their own license because they were struggling for capital. Where the hell did they get the capital to buy a legacy bank? You know, no matter how big the bank is or how small it is, where on earth did that money come from? What's their play here? They've bought a load of they've bought a load of accounts. They've bought a load of customers who were on a very old technology platform in the middle of a migration. They've got their own technology platform. They're trying to launch their own products. I, if anybody else has a, a read on how this is going to go, I'm yeah. really interested. Strategy-wise, this sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But apparently it brings $80 million of capital into their business for, for Tandem, which I guess they're not sniffing out given all of their plans. But like I say, it feels like you're bringing in kind of all of the baggage. You know, but that, but- cap- that capital point's interesting, isn't it? Because that's... It's a little bit opaque because there's only 200 million assets on that balance sheet and about 10 or 15 million shareholder capital. So that's fresh capital from somewhere. And I I think I read somewhere it was from the Qataris. So this, the essence of this deal could actually be the the Qataris have injected money into tandem and they get a banking license. The Harris Bank was owned by Qatar Holdings. So it may well be that there's been a double up act here. And because obviously tandem's audience is not the Harrods audience. (laughs) I I don't think it is anyway. Um, but it may be a fast track for Qatar Holdings to get a stake in something in Britain. So we, we think this might be Qatar investment and you get a bank free. 
that's like yeah that's, I, th- I think that there could be something in the structure of that otherwise the 80 million capital makes makes no sense you want a banking license we have one here you go that would be uh, and, and you can't fault them for that can you I, I guess the the question always is when there's any any element of this acquisition is what happens to the existing customer base and the existing technology right because to your point Sarah it's like they're not in the same they're not even close to being in the same league and and they were in the middle of moving their own platform across anyway so I I, I, I I understand what you guys are saying about maybe that's the way that it's worked, but then what does Tandem get out of this other than a license? Because it's not, I can't work out how they're going to get new customers, how they're going to launch a new product. That, maybe that's all they want, the license. Yeah, license but then the what money. do you do with that? Well, once you've got that, you can go and launch full bank products to the whole but of with Britain. with what money? With a loss-making weight on your back? Holdings, no, got, they, the, the structure of the deal must be that they, they don't carry that loss, and they've got... 60, 80 million excess capital, which is effectively funding. I mean, Harris Bank so has just been the sitting away. there, and you know, Harris has never known what to do with it. It's just existed. And you know, finally, maybe someone's had the bright idea of saying, there's an asset here we can leverage. And maybe, maybe they want to get into the gold bullion business and have a branch in Knightsbridge. You never know. Sounds good. I, like, if, if nothing, I can imagine Ricky Knox rocking up with his motorbike to that branch regularly. Yeah. I should say, by the way, congratulations, Ricky. Well yeah. done. Yeah, amazing. No, no, really good. I mean, it kind of relaunches. Big act, big play. Well done. Yeah, pulled it completely out Interesting of how he goes to uh, department stores, isn't it, for a... Well, for his funding. And, and this, uh, well, this is yeah. the thing, yeah. Ha- uh, House of Fraser was the funding It was before. Chinese money last time. It's Qatari money this time. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm very intrigued. I also got their app this week and started playing with it. Tandems, yeah. So we'll we'll see we'll see what happens there because they need to move pretty quick if they want to they want to get you know get grabs in space. And the Qataris have got form, obviously, in, in owning banks. I think they've got over five percent of Credit Suisse now. They've got uh, they've got Barclays, as we all know. Um, in court, yeah, indeed, yep. indeed. Uh, but they 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 do invest in banks, um, but it probably means Tandem can't Im- expand into Dubai anymore, which is. <laughs> Wow. Sort, a, sort a out the UK cap. to start with, <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. uh, see, see where they go next. I think they'll be fine, but, but I, I think I, it's good news. Yeah, and no, I, I think there's hours that we can talk about this one but i think almost the best thing to do is see what happens next really but just uh, before we move on there's a great story about the harrods bank because um back in the day when Mohammed al-fayed owned harrods he brought in a very uh, prestigious bank manager to the branch from uh, midland bank as it was hsbc now um and the uh, you know gentleman who was running the bank was a little bit aggrieved by the fact that there was a huge display of teddy bears just before he walked into the, bra- the bank branch which is meant to be for high net worth clients so he complained about this to uh, mr alfayed and said look i really don't think it's appropriate for our high net worth clients to see all these teddy bears as they walk into the bank branch and the answer was well when your uh, bank branch makes more money per square foot than the bears do i'll move them for now they stay that's the reason why they've never understood how to run a bank. Nice. Well, businessman till the end. Hey? Check, check out the bears now. And yeah, now it's up. sold. Indeed. And next week on Bear Insider, we will... Um, so moving on, we have a story on Coindesk. This is lawmakers want to see Bitcoin become an official currency of Australia. Wow. Didn't, didn't see this one coming, Did, really. Didn't we have a conversation about official currencies of Australia a few weeks ago? Yeah, the dollar like, do springs to mind? It does. That, the dollar um, do is not going to go away, is it? But, um, <laughs> but this, this is a super interesting one, though, because I, I guess like Australia has been pretty 
averse to innovations to a certain degree every story that kind of comes up has been why they won't let apple pay in or why you know we're, we're sort of uh, trying to reduce the amount of organizations that can have licenses so you know the fact that we're seeing particularly on the regulatory side that they're opening up to uh, cryptocurrency is actually a pretty massive step forward so is this a sense them just trying to sort of get it in the system so they can tax everybody that's doing it or is this something else it's something else I mean, Bitcoin is not a currency because no one spends it. They just um, invest in it and keep them. Um, and then secondly, the story seems to be far more around saying Australia needs to be le- in a leadership position with blockchain rather than Bitcoin. Um, so it's much more really about saying, you know, seeing what Dubai, Singapore, London is doing. You know, S- Sydney, Australia has all lagged behind in this space. We need to have some leadership. And so the liberal left, as it's described in the article, mm-hmm. have been pushing the agenda. Well, they, they have been doing quite a lot on the blockchain space haven't they obviously Blythe Masters and everything with uh, but we've not seen anything come out of that yet really and and that that was announced a couple of years ago what have they actually delivered what have they actually done a couple of stock exchanges are actually um, it's not the Sydney one it's up in Queensland and they're actually running on a blockchain platform behind the scenes now Um, and in Victoria they've just got you know there's multiple working groups as you alluded to they've got hundreds of them over there proof of concept in small regional (laughs) areas Um, they they are getting there I I think I I agree with you I think it's kind of a we need to be a leader in something we might as well be something that helps our banks and the reason that they haven't been particularly innovative is because they've got four banks and they've got more of a stranglehold in the market than I've ever seen anywhere in my entire life Um, so so there's two plays here. One is, as you say, they kind of feel the need to put the you know uh, stake in the ground when it comes to being a fintech leader. But on the other hand, the banks know that they can get something out of this particular avenue. So if the banks are letting – nothing happens in finance in Australia if the four big banks don't let it happen. Now, they're letting this happen, which means that they think they're going to get something out of it. There's, there's probably a big China play here as well because a large part of Australian growth has been connected to China, even though they don't talk about it explicitly. And, and all of what we do is in China or connected to China. And Bitcoin is uh, it has been on fire in China for years. It's been very popular as a way of, let's say, moving money around. And I think Australia knows to be to get further into Chinese wealth and corporates, they need to do a lot more in Bitcoin. But I'm also very impressed by the DLT uh, experiments in China, in Australia, sorry. Uh, Australia is not yet part of China. Uh, by the <laughs> DLT experiments they're doing at the stock exchange and so on, I think it's very impressive. But once again, I agree with you fully in that unless the oligopoly can benefit from it, they won't do it. But I think on blockchain, they, they feel they can. Yeah, that's that's probably the the reason for this one, isn't it? So that would be an amazing acquisition, wouldn't it? The the tandem Harrods one would be an amazing one, but if uh, China acquired Australia, then that would be <laughs> probably the even more shocking. But uh, moving on, so next up we have a, a story from the Scotsman. So this is traditional banks are still standing despite the fintech revolution. So this uh, it feels a little bit sort of like, hey, we've been talking about fintech for a little while. Why are we still talking about it? And the banks are still here. It hasn't worked. But it feels like a bit at odds in terms of like mainstream media, right? Yeah, it's it's not the easiest thought process to follow, or maybe not for me. Um, I think what he's trying to say is that the biggest opportunity is to create it as kind of a, an export industry, as far as I can tell. Um, the way that the way that the author kind of goes into it is that it's there. The big banks are spending lots of money on it. They're obviously going to get somewhere with it. You know, let's make Britain a, 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 a fintech exporter. Great again. <laughs> I, I wasn't going down that route. As far as I can tell, he, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pointing towards you know the underserved markets, the they're underbanked populations and, you know, how, how the new technology can help those populations. And, hey, guys, why don't we export some stuff to those people who need it and we can, you know, get our money back on all this R&D. Um, all the big banks can get their money back on all the R&D they've done. Um, it's, it's my understanding of where this particular author is going with this 
item. Yeah. I mean, I, str- I struggle with this article a bit. It just feels a bit trite, and let's fill let's fill up some space in August when there's not much to write about. Um, you know, some of these sound bites around we haven't seen mass cust- mass migration of customers that experts were expecting. It's well, kind of what, what are you expecting and when? And and if you look at someone like Monzo and and probably the fastest growing banking in the UK at the moment. Kind of extrapolate it, but but it, it I guess it makes a good headline, doesn't it? But yeah. some of this stuff, it you know, revolution in Bitcoin has been slow. I think the best bit in this uh, article uh, was a Mark Carney quote, which is revolutions are not always abrupt, and sometimes their origins remain obscure. And then the journalist writes about why am I not seeing it quicker? Mm. Um, you but sort I think of Mark Carney as often <laughs> kind of nails it. Um, but you can, you can look at all of these data points and say, it is moving quickly. It's gathering momentum. It will, will move more quickly. It feels a little bit like my kids sitting in the back of the car and saying, are we there yet? You yes, know, indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. Part of it, I think, is, is this revolution may not be televised. Uh, I mean, not to come across as the old fogey here, but if you remember securitization in the bond markets, commercial banks kept saying, well, the customers are still here until they weren't. Uh, and they were left with some smaller dollar customers. Or I grew up at Merrill Lynch in the U.S. where – the banks were sitting around going, well, we still have the customers, but they didn't have the valuable customers and they didn't have the valuable parts of their business. So I think, I think it's, it's, as a, as a fintech investor and venture builder, we would very much like this complacency from incumbents. But then again, well, not all <laughs> incumbents. He's a journalist, not from the yeah, incumbents. That's right. That's, right. that's, <laughs> that's, fair, that's, that's fair point. That's fair point. <laughs> at the same time, though, I think there's a, just like what happened in retail, uh, there'll be a massive difference, a gigantic difference between winners and losers. If you look at Amazon, 1400 price stock price appreciation versus Sears Roebuck and the gang. We, we're going to see exactly that in financial services. There'll be winners inside incumbents without even talking about fintechs who will do very well and some will just, just evaporate. And that's when I think it gets televised. There's a big point that I'll underscore here as well. And that ties with the last two stories. And that the reason why I remember the Harrods Bank teddy bear story is that 20 years ago, I was writing the strategy for NCR around cross industry banking and the idea that retailers and telcos would take over banks and offer full scale banking services. 20 years later they don't 20 years ago I was in Australia looking at the Wallace reforms which was meant to break the stranglehold of the big four banks 20 years later their stranglehold is even greater and what you realise is that where you're talking about full service banking then that's actually controlling the economy therefore it controls governments therefore it controls everything that's not going to be broken what can be broken is the, the business model and I think that's where we're seeing some interesting things around financial inclusion and my favorite story of Ant Financial. I can come back to them all the time. But the whole thing around, you know, the fact that now we can bring in 4 billion people who are unbanked or underbanked and give them full-scale services through mobile networks will upscale over time. So it's not complacency. I don't think I see complacency, it's complacency in banks. But I do see that the banks have a very strong stranglehold position, um, which over time might be weakened if, if they let it. I think that's the thing, only if they let it. I think it's uh, any advantage is only sort of uh, given away rather than taken, isn't it, to a certain degree? But um, it's going to, yeah, I think mainstream media may be not covering what's actually happening in the industry as closely as probably we all understand it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if, you know, I think it's Paul Sappho that said, don't mistake a clear view for a short distance. And this is exactly what this journalist is doing and, and says, you know, we're, we're not doing much in, in artificial intelligence and, and light adoption of technology. And you just, you just look at, a kind of year or two ago who was using Siri and Alexa and and that's starting to get ubiquitous in in households and moving on uh, so we have a story over in business insider this is monzo ceo apologizes for unacceptable outages and tells customers to carry a backup bank card 
first on this is tom we know you listen you need to submit some more pictures to journalists because they keep using that one of you looking like a sailor um but um <laughs> what, what do we actually sort of think about the rest of this then it's a i, I kind of feel like people keep hugely respecting monzo for basically just putting their hands up and saying we got like are bad we're fixing this don't panic right there's this there's two sides to this so one is that monza always gets picked up on but every time this happens there's a whole load of other big name fintechs in the uk that go down again revolut is one of them which we talk about quite a lot on this show loot is another there's a whole load of other fintechs out there that use the same processor so this is gps that they're backed up to that is the card issuer on top of wirecard who issue uh, most of the yeah. fintechs but it shows that monza is the hottie because that's well, the ones that we all talk about so that's the other thing is it, it shows that, that that you know everybody everybody knows the name Monzo and you know I've stopped counting those pink cards when I see them on the bus in Croydon because you know they're everywhere but the honesty now we know where you live <laughs> you know where Croydon. you used to live um, the, uh, the, the, the point about Monzo and the transparency thing I, I just really think that this can't actually be underestimated because the fact that it happens the minute it happens I've got a notification on my phone we're sorry your card's gone down it'll be a couple of minutes it'll be 10 minutes it'll be two hours we'll keep you updated we're really sorry this is what's happened this is how it's happened and by the way we're going to give you a nice little diagram of how card processing works super useful for journalists also for kind of the people who actually use the cards so I think you can't you can't underestimate how important that is to people because if my my standard bank card goes down and i won't tell you who i bank with i'm like it's not working it's not is this the wrong card is it the chip falling out like and then 24 hours later i may or may not see something on twitter which says it's gone down because of x i certainly don't get a ping in my app i certainly don't get an apology from the ceo um so what you're saying is monzo is the funniest bank in britain because it keeps going down on you <laughs> well, so this is the other. Th- this is uh, this is the other thing. People, well, every time Barclays, etc., etc., RBS, uh, any of those big ones, like, give me some others quick. HSBC, um, go down. You don't hear RBS about RBS doesn't it. go down never, very often. That's why you never, never hear about never it. Never happened. Um, but every time they go down, you don't hear about it because they don't tell you. So you don't know, and journalists don't jump on it. So we wrote a piece quite recently, which is like Monzo's gone down, and by the way, this week Barclays, NatWest, and Nationwide all went down as well. So. Just whilst you're at it, guys, it's not just them. Um, but but is that uh, is that a? Like, I think it's a positive thing. Like this, hap- this actually happened to me where I went to use it in Starbucks, and it uh, like I went to check my balance on the prepaid card to find out if I had enough money to for the extortionately expensive <laughs> coconut latte that I was buying or whatever it was. Um, but the, is instantly I knew that there was a problem, so it, it avoided that kind of embarrassment of that yeah. card not working you know so but but is it uh, like that so that's good from my perspective but almost like I, I think a lot of the incumbents are trying not to draw attention to this stuff whereas like it there's a whole like if you own it and you fess up to it and you you know you explain it then it's a you know it's a different thing there's, isn't it there's two things there one is that just monzo can blame somebody else right now for true. it That's whereas <laughs> any of the incumbent banks are going to have to say this is our technology our whatever else um the other thing is that it, it whilst we're sitting here going no we love them we love the transparency i know that this has actually caused like a division between monzo users 50 percent of whom are like no we love it we love the transparency 50 percent of whom have gone sod this I'm going back to X or I'm moving to Y because it keeps happening. And they're like, until you can prove otherwise. So there, is, there isn't, isn't actually, you know, we love the transparency, but not everybody does. No, I, think, I think there's a halo effect, right? And it's a, there's a life cycle point. And at some point, um, when Monzo's not the youngest and coolest, people won't be so, so laid back about this thing falling over, nor will the regulator who will sting them with a fine. Um, and then they'll have to, to kind of pay to do their systems up. But right now, they're probably a long way away from 
from that. And, and I do think that Tom's he's taking it very seriously, right? And it sounds like they're going to get it sorted sorted towards the end of the year. So, um. Well, the, the sort of um, issuance of uh, sort of real current accounts has begun. You know, there's um, plans afoot to have uh, pretty much all of the prepaid cards replaced by May, March. Anytime uh, they want to speed up the Android rollout, that would be great as well, just as an aside. Well, so... <laughs> Tom did say the other night that actually he is an Android user himself. So, you know, he's placing a lot of emphasis over being able to use his own Excellent. product pretty quickly, which Excellent. is uh, which is good. So I think to your point, David, there's a different angle here as well, which is it's almost like the airline industry. So when you see United dragging someone off the flight, that gets massive negative response. And the CEO tries to duck the issue and doesn't respond for days and then is, is outed. And it just looks terrible. It's a bit like the mainstream banks. Whereas what Tom's doing is more like Southwest Airlines, where you see a headline saying Southwest Airlines heard that um, their son had been sort of injured in a car crash as they were taxiing down the runway and turned the aircraft back and dropped the couple off so they could go and be with their son. You know, it's, it's, it's a different attitude and view of how you deal with issues uh, which I think is what we're underscoring here and I'm not saying the big banks are terrible at dealing with issues so for example when the glitch happened with RBS you know I think the use of social media and communication was very good during that period but it's saying that there is as you say Andy the halo effect around when you're a new company with a fresh culture then you have a very different outlook to a very old company with a very old culture very true i love the airlines reference i won't get on to the facebook rant that you had this week about ryanair but we'll maybe come back to that at some point so uh, uh moving on and we have the second story of the show from business insider this is softbank's running list of deals show it's the biggest craziest investor in tech right now sarah this one was very entertaining these guys are sort of is like is the old saying of sort of more money than sense a, a thing or what, what, what are they doing here <laughs> So I can tell you that I know the people who put this together and as they were putting it together, they had to keep pausing publishing it because they kept finding more deals. Like SoftBank kept announcing more deals. They had to keep, oh, got to add another one, got to add another one. Um, I can also, you know, an, an unnamed person in our office sort of shrieked the other day, where the hell is this money coming from? Because um, if you look at the size of some of these deals, I mean, everybody knows about Arm and the 24 billion or whatever it was. Um, but, you know, even the smaller ones, the most recent one that's obviously, you know, of interest to me, given my coverage area, is 250 million into Cabbage. Now, that's like the biggest investment into an alt lender for a really, really long time. And it, I don't know if it's more money than cents, but I would really love to know the game plan basically is where i'm going with this i I guess if they have as much sense as they have money then i'm terrified yeah that's that's it they're gonna rule the world yeah Yeah. it's a bit like they're like man city aren't they coming in with their their big check buying up buying up all the i think they call them gems and and if you look at the whether they paid the right amount or not i don't know but you look at the the pedigree of the companies that they bought from the likes of WeWorks. these are tremendous companies so but they they seem to have sped up over the summer i don't know i don't know what's happened i think they bought another one today as well well well, it's pretty varied isn't it so anything from sort of paytm to Boston Dynamics, the guys making the... The, the terrifying the, robots. The terrifying robots, yeah. Uh, even down to sort of chip manufacturers. So NVIDIA, uh, they've made a, what was it, a $4 billion investment in? You know, like these are these guys it, are not it, messing it's around. Right? Interesting. And I, I know one of the companies that they invested in, and the CEO of that company told me that he went and asked for $200 million, and they said, no, have a billion. And it's like... <laughs> 
why but i think what they're doing is they're spotting uh, potential future unicorns businesses that will dominate spaces be monopolies in their areas and just saying we're going to build those businesses and give them all the cash they need and they seem to have a bias towards i mean they are they are going for the big ones right and they yeah. they seem to be investing in india which has got a great big consumer base so uh, they they're not messing around. you're based in hong kong to me you must yeah. know these I mean, guys th- what 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 i respect about them is they were they're keeping i think i think intellectually honest but they're saying there's some thematic kind of tectonic trends we're going to get behind like ai iot the change in financial services biotech so then broadly or the future of work or how humanity interacts with each other the, i think the, for me the big questions are well first of all that's great but for me the big questions are how do you generate consistent returns when you have that much money to deploy um because in venture capital if you look at it on a 5 10 20 50 year cycle uh, there's a massive difference between Q1 returns and median returns. And median returns actually adjusted for expenses don't actually beat the public markets, which is a scary truth about venture capital that people like me don't typically tell you uh, because we like to pretend we're going to be the Q1 and very few people are in Q1 for so for, 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 for uh, you know, sequentially, regularly. And then he's got, you know, hundred, let's say roughly $100 billion between him, his own fund and the Saudi money. Uh, and it's not easy to deploy that amount of money and generate great returns. So, so because just given the dollar amount he's putting in each company, most of them have to be hits. Where to generate? Whereas in venture capital, but, you but go do early. They really? I mean, some of these big big companies who've, who've put money in, if they become a new gaffer, they're going to get their money back and then some. And maybe that's the point that some of these tech companies can be so exponential that that's you get your money for. back by one hit. I, yep. I, I do wonder what. Uh, whenever I see significant investment of this scale, I wonder what the company's doing with that money. So, like Slack getting. So Slack has raised a number of rounds, but purely from this organization, got two hundred and fifty million dollars what is slack doing with like i love slack we use it all the time but what can you possibly be doing with that amount of money so if you first combine these two what andy said which i think is very, very worth thinking through which is if you look at jeremy lou and lightspeed and how they found uh, snap they said oh this is going to be great very early uh, and that became one of the you know legendary investments ever made and that's and from now on they don't frankly on in that fund they frankly don't need to do anything else Right, they will, but they're done. They're done for that for that fund because it's a small amount generated absurdly large returns. In this one, I'm, I'm with you a little bit, which is how do how not just how many of these can you find, but what is the exponential increase in value? It's already buying at later stage at a rich valuation, where you better hope many of them become become kind of the, the next bat fangs or whatever. And I just don't know what they do with that money. Uh, because some of these are at reasonable scale already, unless they're, unless they're all going to be world-dominating companies. And no one in history has ever f- funded or more than you know, two world-dominating companies. I think they're looking to be the first, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's interesting is how many of them are at scale, actually. So that's what's fascinating to me. If you look through this, the, the, the slide chain that we put together, how many of those companies are actually small? They're, they're n- nearly every single one on this list is a seriously big company right now. And that, to me, is a f- fascinating strategy i don't know i don't know what they're expecting out of it i'd I'd love to know i don't know their strategy i'd like to hope they're more smart than us i think it's (laughs) i think it's a good chris point they're trying to pick uh, companies that will dominate segments and and markets like if you picked amazon 10 years ago which was at scale and has gone on to well in which case my favorite is the uh, irobot which makes roombas which have been around for a very long time is that your pick that's my pick Uh, yeah i I have wanted one of those forever for years yeah like make it less than three thousand pounds and i'd have one but uh, but that, this happened in private equity. As private equity for funds became bigger and bigger because people were chasing the last fund's returns, they started buying publicly traded companies. 
things and then saying, well, and you just have to work harder for your money because you've got to do a lot more. But still, to, to Andy's point, yeah, you're right. Amazon, even if you bought it five years ago at quote-unquote scale, you still made money. And some of the private equity groups, this world pay has been traded around a few times. People thought that was done. So there's always someone, but I just get nervous when I'm not a, I'm not an LP in, in SoftBank, but I would love to give him my money, even given what he's done. But then again, you, you do get a little bit nervous, and, and that is, it is, is, is lofty. A- acquisition at that scale becomes almost, it looks like an amazing collection. Do you know what I mean? It feels like a collection of things, doesn't like it? A collector, Rather than, yeah. as in literally, let's put them on the shelf and say yeah. we've got X, Y, Z, and yeah. mount but, them and stuff them. But but they're all going to make money. They're all going to increase in value because of what they're doing. But I guess how much money we're going to have to wait and see. Well, you hope. I mean, the, when you said you know the collection, the, one of the most pernicious things that happens in publicly traded mutual funds is window dressing, when the fund manager at time of reporting goes and buys the things everyone likes. Just because at this point, he or she, mostly unfortunately it's a he, uh, they're just asset a- a- gatherers. They're not asset managers at some point. And that's, if that starts happening to venture, that's going to be a sad, sad time. I wonder if at that point it allows you to get in earlier on the next thing. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's almost the the next round of, you know, to, to the sort of football analogy earlier on of Man City. They bought their way to the title in the first instance, but now they can grow the, the sort of home brand talent yeah. Yeah, and get in earlier on the next sort of iteration of stuff. And if you've got billions, then it doesn't matter, right? And looking through the list of companies, they've made an improbable grab to make sure they're not armless. <laughs> 25 billion grab oh, and on that note don't give up your day job <laughs> if you'd like to hear more of Chris Skinner's comedy <laughs> round then uh, so uh, probably a good time to hear from our sponsors and we'll fill up our drinks the Financial Times guides you through complex issues in divisive times don't settle for black and white when you need the full perspective turn to ft.com become a subscriber today Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by SmartDX, a smart communication solution. The days of managing capital markets documentation using Word docs and emails are over when you use SmartDX in its innovative, collaborative negotiation environment built by the industry for the industry. SmartDX simplifies drafting, negotiation, and execution of all capital markets documentation for all asset classes and product types while giving you transparency, control, and digital data that can be extracted at any point in the process. Learn more at www.smartcommunications.com backslash smartdx. Fantastic. And back with the next story. So this is one from the Wall Street Journal. This is People's Bank of China has fintech on its mind, which I guess, given the scale of it and all of the opportunities is probably no bad thing. What do we think on this? Yeah, the, um, there's a few things going on. One is one one big news item was uh, the de- development of a clearinghouse for mobile payments, for mobile and online payments. 
which which is it is a massive tectonic kind of event. Uh, and just to put some context, mobile payments in China are a very big deal. They're about fifty times, five zero times bigger than the entire United States. Last year, they were about five point five trillion U.S. dollars. That's trillion with a T. Uh, so this is monumental. Uh, and the market leaders are Alibaba with about 54, 55% market share, and the WeChat guys are about 38 to 40. The numbers change a little bit. Uh, so this is an existential threat to banks if you take away the payments franchise. Uh, so th- you can't help but think there is an empire strikes back element to this, which is sort of the banks lobbying the regulator and saying, hey, guys, enough is enough. I know we were letting these fintechs sort of do their thing, bring some innovation, bring costs down, and so on, but come on, you know, this, this is a significant portion. At the same time, I, I'd be, any comment on Chinese financial services uh, would, would be incomplete without making clear that the Chinese regulator is one of the most astute and practical regulators out there. And they've got to balance innovation uh, with stability and, and growth. So this is, must, must not have been an easy decision for them. Finally, I'll say that uh, I'm actually net positive on this. While it's negative for Baba and WeChat, I think it's fantastically positive for the industry uh, because it's all about data ultimately. I don't think this is about control. I think this is about data. Good data is really the new oil. I think everyone said that now. I'm probably the last guy to say it. But data is the new oil. This is about data. Uh, and for all the new proposition development for AI to work in financial services, you need data. China has some of the most amazing data because everything, most things end up being centralized. This is just one more example. Uh, so I think the first read of this for people would be, well, this is Empire Strikes Back, banks hitting back. I think it's really about data, having reliable data that people can share mm. and build something useful with. Is, is this a little bit like the, you know, the horse bolted a long time ago and, you know, Alipay has got 450 million active customers? You know, like, is this something they can do something about? Now? I think it's more that they've woken up to a lot of the headlines in the Western media about shadow banking in China and saying, look, there are risks in what's going on here, and we need to address those risks. Um, I, with Alibaba and Tencent and Badu, I think they recognize that those are really well-established companies that are doing good things for society, in fact, in that um, you know, the whole mantra that I heard when I was in Hangzhou in China is we're helping society to include everybody, to raise everyone's ability to um, you know, have wealth and a good life life which is a good thing and the government respects that so it's not those guys that they're targeting it's the more risky shadow banking peer-to-peer lending practices and i think there's a key point that samir and i were talking about earlier which is um when you look at what's happening in china and i keep being tempted to say china um sorry donald trump steps in um china um that it's really we talk about donald trump at some <laughs> let's point. Talk about like donald every, trump. Every let's just bomb north korea it, now it's, it's um, donald no, trump sorry. or will i am every every episode isn't it so, um you know, the key thing is I don't think Europeans and Americans have woken up. You know, I, I think we're ignoring what is happening with these Chinese companies. And bearing in mind that um, Ant Financial, as I'm writing about in my new book, Shameless Plug, um, is global um, and going global and really investing heavily in financial inclusion. Um, and Tencent's also broken out of China, um, and a lot of people haven't even noticed. You know that these guys. When we talk about Gaffer, we're always talking about these American giants: Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Why don't we talk about the Chinese internet giants? Uh, to, uh, to be honest, I think they have woken up. I, I think you know, and I think the the like bizarrely the the reason that we think they've woken up is that actually like the tourists are not going to Silicon Valley anymore. You know, all the tourists for understanding what good looks like is actually going to China to actually understand. How are you putting 450 million people on a tourists from Europe? Maybe, but Americans aren't. I, maybe, I, not, know. maybe not Americans, but I think I think American banking is so far removed from 
innovation really you know we're still spelling checks wrong and you know issuing checks and all of those things but the but reason i mentioned is i was in a fintech group just yesterday where they was talking about android, android pay and how huge it was compared to you know it's, uh, and samsung pay compared to apple pay and saying it must be because of asia and i'm going no asia is all alipay and wechat pay you know they're not interested the chinese financial services had the, had the benefit you would argue of, of leapfrogging because there was only enough infrastructure built services that leapfrogged went straight to mobile straight to digital um, there was an amazing thing in The Economist the other day saying that 20 years ago you had to take a proficiency test in using an abacus to work in a Chinese bank. Wow. You know, and now they're the leading you know, economy for, for cashless payments. I mean, as Chris, you know, I go to China almost every week. You can live a cashless life from buying you know, not just coffee, but literally the roasted chestnuts in the street, to, to buying, for, paying for your meals. It is all cashless. It's on, it's on QR codes and so on. It's, it's very seamless. At the same time, you know, you do need some control around it because of particular shadow banking, money movement outside of China, which is a big uh, concern. Because uh, there's, there's a limit, I think, how much Chinese citizens can take abroad um, or invest abroad. It's like fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand US dollars, and and obviously Chinese business people, being the, the some of the smartest people in the world, they found ways around that. So the, the government's trying to come back at that. I mean, and frankly, that's one of the reasons why Bitcoin's been so so popular. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to, to monitor that. But I, I would say Chinese financial services, Chinese fintech have been the world's biggest sandbox. <laughs> in fact, they've created some of the biggest companies in that sandbox. So you could argue the sandbox was overpowering the, what was, the garden and the sandbox swap, swap places at some point. That's a deep metaphor right there. But that's uh, pretty vivid for all you listeners. But um, moving on, on to the next story. This is one in uh, Medium. So this is, and, and I think, you know, to, to the story that we had earlier on around Monzo, this sort of highlights how big a deal these guys are sort of becoming. So this is a master's degree final major project that was in theoretical design for improvements and new concepts for the Monzo Bank, which I was like, wow, like as a... Given you can that, do that? Yeah, like, yeah, that's a, that's a master's, you know, like, I, I, feel, work, I, feel like I, I work pretty hard for my master's, I'll be honest with you, you know, but written by Jason Bates. <laughs> no, he did the first iteration uh, of that, but, uh, but so it was an, it actually a really amazing story. So the fact that, uh, you know, a professor somewhere would have kind of deemed this master's quality, but actually all of the things that uh, this, this gentleman actually did. So this is Connor Gettle, who actually was the UX UI designer uh, master's major who, who actually sort of put this forward was really, really impressive to be honest with you and actually the the things that he put forward and the ideas around how uh you know uh, different categorization elements could be brought forward uh how they could start increasing the 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 functionality to include things like dependence uh, it was actually really really good and actually things that i could see myself actually using so um i actually managed to talk to hugo who's actually the the sort of lead designer at monzo about this one uh while i was actually picking up my current account last week or the week week before Oh, you can um, stop bragging now. It's all right. And, and, You've got it. And, and, yeah, I know. Like, you know, just saying. Um, but but it, was a, it was an interesting one because I was like, is this something like, do you, like, is this in good spirits you take this? Because yeah, it's basically like somebody so. marking your homework. Yeah. Oh, I assume right. he's got a job lined up at well, Monzo I'm, when he's finished. Yeah, this reads to me so. like a job application. Yeah. But that's what I did it's say. Not it's not Monzo somewhere else. It, it you could probably the, work on the NatWest app if you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to back that up. You realize at a later date when he emails you. Yeah, we'll, I'm going to we'll, sponsor a master's program on the NatWest app. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link in the URL <laughs> that you can apply for that job. But, in, it, uh, but it does, seriously. I mean, it shows the passion of the community behind yeah. behind Monzo, right? And the, the network effect, I guess, that it is creating here. Well, well in the quality of those guys' work was mm. phenomenal, if I'm honest with you. So I, I was just super impressed in terms of taking something that actually worked 
phenomenally well from a bunch of people who had incredibly large amounts of um, skills in actually doing these things from somebody who had so little experience within financial services and design and taking it further. So, you know, this guy has definitely got a future in... Uh, it in, gives um, you an idea of what your, your, your next iteration of design, whether you give it to a, a business school or a design school and say, give, give me five options to, to build this thing out. Well, that's definitely something I did do when I was at a bank. There's smart people and, and super hungry people in... Uh, many of the, the the sort of grant schemes around uh, many of the particularly within the the sort of London uh, uni scene and actually the amount of accelerated learning you can do for those guys and for what you can do for the company not only from a um, what how good the ideas actually are but actually the the sort of cultural sort of osmosis that the organization can kind of get for those things really smart thing to do I mean you will you, you won't hear a big bank not talk about talent and the difficulty it has hiring talent just because it's not that they're any better or worse than anybody else just there isn't enough to go around right now people with this kind of caliber of, of, of skills so you know a this is great I'm sure he's got a job lined up the minute he finishes and B you know if we can teach this if we can get more and more people doing this and understanding this and teaching this then that talent problem is going to go away and that's brilliant because you know that's that's what everybody needs right now that they're, they're struggling to get people on board who kind of understand things properly and have used them this is showing that it's out there. I'd just be interested to hear what Andy and Samir have to say because you both work for large banks and you, know, you don't see this passion from customers of large banks. You, you know, the new guys have passionate fans. Mm-hmm. What fans does RBS or Stanchart or the big banks have? So I, I've worked in two large financial service institutions. Uh, one is uh, Merrill Lynch in the US, and there was with Standard Chartered Bank in Asia. And when, while I was a management consultant, I had the privilege of working with some of the, some of those very successful ones. What, what I, I'm going to generalize across decades and dozens of companies, but given those caveats, I'll say one, one brought up. Sweeping generalization. Right, right, exactly. Those are the only ways to generalize, I've found, right, is uh, there's an incredible amount of passion at the front line. The RMs, the call center, the people who meet customers are just filled because, because they take it personally. Because these people, if you, got, if you remember, most of emerging, I'm talking emerging markets now, a financial services job, a banking job has actually been a coveted job. You work really hard to, to get there. You've got to go to a good school, work hard, go through an interview process. So you are in a position of a privilege. And uh, there's a lot of uh, ownership at the front line. So what I saw, and if you look at the net promoter scores uh, of, of employees, the front line typically is really happy to be there. Uh, but they are happier when they're a bit more empowered. And what we see is if you go closer to the head office, the scores drop. The enthusiasm drops, partly because they don't, they're not as connected to the front line anymore. And I think it's a bit, and how do you, I guess the question, how do you fix that? I think it's a bit more than first-hand days and so on. I think you got to compress the organization, move people around a lot, use some of the garage techniques. I think, Chris, you were talking about, because too many people in a bank are, have never met a customer, have never solved a problem for a customer, don't know how revenue is generated. Uh, when we work with our startups, we make sure everyone knows where dollar one comes from, how dollar one is used. Um, and, and so I, I don't think, I think, frankly, I don't think it's about will or, or enthusiasm for the job. It's about being disconnected from how this business works. I, I think that, I think that's definitely a big thing. It's, it's that comfort of it not mattering. Um, so, you know, to your point, if it's a startup, then every penny and every pound actually hugely matters, both in terms of revenue and spend. And actually, the closer you are to that fire, the and, and the fire being the customer to a certain degree, whether they're super happy or super sad, then it really sort of shapes in the way in which you think about day to day life, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the question opens up then, you know, what 
channels do these larger organizations have for people to express their ideas or opinions? So, you know, Monzo, Starling, any of those guys have, um, they have, you know, hackathons, they have open days, they have drinks and dinners where you can go along and, and, you know, express your ideas. You know, it'd be really great if you built a gold unicorn that I could take money out of every seventh Tuesday or something. Trademark, trademark, quick. (laughs) But like, but like, how do you, how do you, how do you get those ideas across to your bigger banks? You might have a great idea about your high street bank, but there's no, it's not, and I'm, forgive me, I haven't tried, but my understanding is it's not as easy. So this guy's got that out there and you know Tom's, Tom's going to read it or like he, you know, he could go along to one of those evenings and like put it out there or pitch it. Yeah. Well, without giving the, the game away, I do get the odd one. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure if you call them super fans, but, but, you know, so if someone sends an email to, to Ross McEwen and says, I've got this great idea about your corporate business or, or something about Coots, it comes to me. Um, and then I, I often get them from RMs and, and the back office guys. Um, we did a customer co-creation event back in February. Um, my, my problem is absorbing the ideas because I can only, I can only cope with so many. And, and sometimes it's a similar idea as we've had or we've tried it before. Because I can't do that many, I try not to encourage it openly because I can't disappoint hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, but we, we've, we've got a nice cybersecurity idea that came from a customer around ethical phishing that we, we launched a couple of weeks ago. So it does happen, but admittedly, we don't have master's programs on us, us quite yet. I, I guess that's, that's the <laughs> yes. difference, isn't it? If you've got, you know, 100,000 customers or millions and millions of customers, then the, the volume of those things is going to be very, very different, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine if you tried to invite everybody for a drink. It would be, uh, even your <laughs> yeah. Liverpool Street building <laughs> okay. might struggle. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> maybe, I should, maybe I should send uh, Tom a message on keeping his systems up and some, <laughs> some ideas I've had. Indeed. Build your own. We, we see some tremendous innovation, not just in technology, but in customer service and experience design with different tech companies. Not just fintech, but different tech companies. One, I'll just share one in the interest of time. Um, from a, a unicorn in the transportation Space. What they do narrows it down so much. What, what they do, well, yeah. What they do is, no matter who you are, no matter how senior you are, junior, which part of the business you work in, you spend half a day a week, uh, half a day a week, r- doing what they call tickets, customer service, mm-hmm. with the drivers, riders, and and passengers. Right. So you really are on the front line. And what they've noticed something interesting: people who don't work in customer connected businesses actually are more engaged. Because they ask, so the call times are longer, not because they don't know how to use the system. The system is pretty easy. It's because call times are longer because they actually enjoy talking to customers and trying to figure out how do you solve that problem. And there's a lesson in there somewhere. Indeed, very much. Uh, like the closer you get to customer, the the more you realize the reality of the situation, I guess, is uh, probably the lesson in that one. But moving on. So next up, we have a story coming from FNLondon.com. And this is Banks to Fintech Talent. No need for the Shoreditch switch. Interesting. <laughs> so, so the idea of this is um, the particular example focused on here is JP Morgan, which is um, basically allowing, it, very, very similar to Samir's point, allowing its internal staff to, to have some days, weeks, you know, however it works out for them to, to, to innovate and work on their own projects. And, you know, if it, if it goes through XYZ level, then they get to take that off and run it as their own project within the business. It's, it's fascinating because the idea is that they're allowing the people who work in the business to solve the problems they see every day. So to me, this shouldn't be a kind of like, oh, wow, this is a, you know, an out there moonshot idea. Like, if the people in your business can tell you where the problems are in the processes, then why not let them suggest? just a solution and why not you know give a formal process to that because then they will feel empowered to do so so if it's just like there's a little box and they can put an idea in and put an idea in and never hear anything back they're not going to do it but if somebody comes along with an idea you know say you have a hackathon day and one idea is 
brilliant and you take that one idea and you set them up and you give them a little bit of funding, a little bit of space, a little bit of resource and it turns out brilliantly, you think everybody else in the company is going to want to try that? Sure they are. The thing that really I picked up on in this particular article is that a couple of people who commented in it said, oh, well, bank's culture just doesn't work that way. But to me, how are you going to change the bank's culture if you don't let them try? Like, I, I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? If you if you don't sort of change what you're doing, you can't expect a different outcome from from the uh, the, the process to a certain degree. But and I, and I think this is actually probably quite a smart reaction. You know, we had um, Phoebe, the CEO of Broly on InsureTech Insider this week, actually, and her frustrations of working at uh, Aviva and the inability to do the things that she wanted to do led to her just going and starting a new company and making it happen. And that, like, we're seeing that happen repeatedly. You know, people are leaving big organizations because of that inertia. But, uh, but I think this is a great reaction to it because it's like, hey, like, we love your enthusiasm. We love your uh, kind of uh, desire to make these changes happen. Make this happen in the business and take us with you, you know? I think, I think that's the, 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 the risk in financial services. It's not that customers start leaving or the regulators don't protect you or uh, work with you. It's talent. The cost of doing a startup is at a historic low. The cost of data, bandwidth, office space. Uh, I, I name, name something that it takes to start a fintech. It's an all-time low. You can probably do one for $75,000 in Singapore. You can. The challenge really is you're some of your most talented people, some of your most entrepreneurial people, your most passionate people say, you know what, screw this. Can I say screw this online? You can, so you can go worse than that. Far worse than that. <laughs> and they say, you know what, I'm going to take a credit card loan, as people are doing. I'm going to take a credit card loan, some savings, go go meet a couple angels, because there's more angel networks, I think, in Hong Kong than there actually are startups. But And you can go start something. And that's the real risk. I don't think it's customers leaving. I don't think it's some some guy at Amazon. I, mean, I know at Amazon they are developing this, but the real risk is some of your best people at home. They're, they're, they're writing a short PowerPoint deck. And there, there'll be one day they'll have a really bad day or a really bad review or some, something inappropriate will happen in the office and they'll go, go start their own I mean, I don't, I don't want to pour cold water on this one because I, I, do, I do get the principle. But if you read the article, there's only two people I think that they put on this program. Um, and they're not in, not planning to in, increase it further. So it, it's a very clever piece of positioning uh, that's not going to change the world and maybe keep two people happy. But I do get that I think all income businesses, particularly in banking, where we're highly regulated, are struggling with being innovative and having folks being creative in a regulated environment where you're pushing for consistency and fairness and, and, and um, real integrity of outcome. Um, and we're all doing that. I mean, we, uh, RBS, we've put three or 4,000 people through an entrepreneur program where we teach them how entrepreneurs think for a day, which gives them a lot of empathy with their customers, but equally says, you know, bring some of this to your, your, your work and how you do things. And so you see elements of it, but equally what you don't want is 4,000 kind of entrepreneurs coming in every day going, I'm going to do this, dip, I'm going to bash this policy and this process. So, but you do want that little bit of them in there going, I'm going to push, I'm going to try, I'm going to be creative. I'm There's going to a really interesting thing here, though, and that um, when we talk about fintech, you know, financial and technology, uh, financial is all about this risk compliance and secure environment that's um, controlled very heavily. And tech is all about this loose, hip, visionary environment that's typically younger. Um, and how do you marry the two? And I think that's where the friction comes in. And how do we solve that? And what I like about um, where we are today, you know, Samir referenced the idea of startups can get started very easily with you know, bootstrapping and hardly any funding, is that 
for all my life in financial services that's quite a long time i'm not going to go there um yeah when dinosaurs were all the earth at luxury um anyway back then um we had this long debate around command control versus coach council organizational structures and cultures and coach council is what you see in the googles and the uh, alibabas of this world whereas command control is what you see in banks and it's because banks are risk compliance secure versus technology which is um innovate fast cycle rapid change and how do you bring that together i don't think we, we've solved that yet you know over the next 10 or 20 years we'll see something come out of this it's going to be the new financial structure that does marry those two environments i absolutely think the um the, the problem is not the people in the banks because you see especially in the early waves of fintech the people that were leaving the banks that weren't innovative became very innovative as soon as they were in a different environment so it's all cultural yeah so how do you so if you basically you know how do you get those people within the bank to be innovative to think in a different way to be able to you know have the freedom to sort of like you, you said you don't want four thousand entrepreneurs coming to work every day and being like no we're not doing it this I way, want a doing little bit of um, it. but exactly but yeah. how do you encourage that little bit that little spark and push, from my perspective there's that risk there are areas in banking you cannot take risks you cannot take risks with compliance you cannot take risks with people's money that's just not even anywhere near the table there are areas you can take risks you can you, you can have those kind of technology not not like let's replace our core system or we're going to take a risk on this yeah. like let's let's have you know an innovation arm or an innovation budget and and to me the, the encouraging that kind of Okay, we can take a risk yeah. here in this area and making that very clear to people like in this area, we can take a risk and we're going to give you all of you, everybody in the company, two days a year, go for it. See what yeah. you can give us. I think I think that's right. And I think I think what we try and encourage is let's, let's do. I mean, I, I run the, the innovation arm and, and I'm hoping it's a snowball effect. Right. So start to do things people believe uh, and they get behind it. Uh, but equally, we send a message out, which is saying if you're doing something for the right reason, whether it's for a customer or it's to break a process that's that should be broken, we'll kind of forgive you. So we'll look at your behavior first. And I think that's a really important message. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's outcome and intent. Well, that's it, right. It, it's that's the, the way you incentivize your your employees as well, surely. So if if they're you know if if the incentive structure is the minute you do something wrong, that's it, you're out. Like we are a bank, we have these rules, and that's how this is black and white. Then nobody's going to even try anything, are they? Because they're going to be like, oh, my toes over the line. But, but I'm I think I'm, job. Uh, I'm definitely seeing real clear signs that that's changing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, yeah. I, and I kind of feel like uh, you know, I just wrote a report with some case studies on this. Uh, have you? Indeed. Um, I think that hit my inbox earlier. Yeah, yeah, might have done. <laughs> it's interesting how it works on, a, on an SMR and a material risk taker regime as well, which doesn't encourage innovation. Indeed. And there is something to this, to what Chris was saying. I'll pick up on that, which is financial services typically what people value is about sort of stability, reliability, uh, rules, and tech is about moving fast, innovating, breaking things. And as one of my clients and one of my investors now actually said, every time financial services companies have moved too fast and broken too many things, the things they've broken are like the global economy. So, <laughs> so the, exactly. we've got to be careful. Small thing, not a big deal. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Uh, moving on. So next up, we have a story from CNN. Not a usual source of uh, stories on Fintech Insider, I have to say. But this is the 26-year-old founder who wants to change payments in Africa 
And dear golly, they've had some investment from pretty exciting places, Chris. What do we know about this one? I just love this story because um, you and I were in Rwanda earlier this year and last year in Kenya. And what you see in Africa taking place is just transformational and quite amazing in terms of, uh, you know, we talked about China earlier, um, starting with a clean sheet um, to reinvent the economy. Well, these guys are just reimagining everything. And 26-year-old Nigerian entrepreneur, Ian Oloa Abuyeji, I that was I'd my best there. guest as well, yeah. Um, runs a company called Flutterwave, which just got $10 million investment from the US and investors. And just the quotes he's making here are really underscoring why it's so important to focus on what's happening in Africa, bearing in mind it's a continent, not a country. So lots of countries, Nigeria being where Flutterwave is based from. Um, but he says it's critical that Africans are able to participate in the digital economy and goes on further down to say the reality is that it's not about flying to the moon and moonshot missions. It's about whether the majority of people in 30 years can lead good lives because of technology. And this resonates so much with me because it's exactly what I heard when I talked to Paytm or Ant Financial or any of the guys who are using technology to, particularly today's open source mobile network technologies, to deliver financial inclusion. That suddenly 4 billion people who have been ignored by the banking system because it's too costly to serve them are now included. Well, it's, it's always about connectivity, isn't it? And actually, you know, we're seeing almost the uh, and the article kind of goes on to, to talk about but african businesses being inhibited with their ability to connect into things like google and facebook and these these types of guys and this type of service actually just connecting them to the rest of the planet which is amazing i, th- I think it actually stated at one point that wasn't it mark zuckerberg put in was it 24 million pounds into the last round yeah so this yeah. this is you know this is a startup with serious momentum so really really interesting to see what comes and it's more than that it's kind of the what Costa Peric from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation talks about, which is that when everybody's included in the economy, the economy gets better. Yeah. And this is a critical thing that you know, McKinsey estimates something like $3.5 trillion a year increase in global GDP through financial inclusion over the next 10 years. And the numbers are astounding, but equally, it means that all these guys who are on the fringes are now no longer on the fringe. You know, one of the things that um, Ant Financial was saying to me in China is that a lot of the people who moved into the cities are now moving back to the villages because once they've got a connection onto the internet, they can do a business. You know, and that's something you could never do before. Indeed. I think I think the other thing to add here is it's it's so important to get the people who have the experience in the places to design the solutions. So this guy was saying he was working for a company, he was the only African, you know, work, working for that particular company and it just wasn't it wasn't getting him anywhere. He wasn't being able to drive his vision. But he has lived there. He has a personal experience of those problems. And it kind of it's an argument for diversity. So if you're going to go up there and you're going to provide solutions to a problem, for goodness sake, have somebody who's experienced that problem, whether it's, you know, they're from a particular country, from a different race, ethnicity, gender, whatever it is. Like it, it's it's always an argument for get the people who've experienced the problem firsthand, get them to explain a solution. And as you said, you know, the instant you understand that cultural difference, you've got it. Well, I recently met um, Vijay Sharma Shekhar, who's the CEO and founder of Paytm in India. And um, name if, drop, name drop, name drop, name drop, name drop, multi-billionaire. Um, but if you hear his story, it's an amazing story, which is that um, he grew up as a child prodigy in a city just outside Delhi, or t- large town outside Delhi. And then he went to Delhi University, and um, because he didn't speak English, had to drop out because he spoke only Hindi. And uh, although he's 
you know, a genius um, because he didn't speak English, couldn't succeed in college. He dropped out and started coding, uh, taught himself English um, by reading um, books simultaneously in Hindi and English, created a company with some friends that became a multi-million dollar company, but his friends screwed him and bankrupted him. Um, this is in 2005. So he was living literally on mattresses on his friend's floors and walking to work to meetings, n- not eating because he couldn't afford to eat. And then he heard about Ant Financial six, several years later when he was a little bit better off, went to an Ant Financial meeting and copied what they did in India. And now he's a multi-billionaire. And you know, th- this to me is what we're seeing, that people who have good ideas and see good ideas from other people and replicate those and incorporate those can start up very cheaply from almost nothing and then become an overnight almost success Mm. well like say if you can do it somewhere that scales infinitely then that sort of hustling uh, take a good idea and and scale it to something amazing would be uh, would work really really well and Vijay has this vision of banking 500 million Indians by 2020 and they have a bank license with, with ATM. You know, 500 million, that's, almost, that's like half the population of India. So and it's can, the, now uh, I can it's see why SoftBank soft invested in them. Exactly. Um, so I guess uh, moving on reasonably sort of quickly on that one, because I think uh, the, the sort of conversation around Africa and everything that could just, we could just go on. For, like, we're going to have to have a show on that pretty soon, I think. But uh, so the, moving on to the last story. So this is The Telegraph. This is... And we generally like to sort of finish on like a funny one, but I'm not sure I find this one too funny. There's quite a sinister sort of uh, overtone yeah. to this. It makes me want to cry. Yeah, this yeah. is <laughs> this is wanna cry hero Marcus oh. Hutchins oh. prevented from working by the U.S. bail terms. So this is the guy for for anybody sort of doesn't know about this too much. The the wanna cry um, ransom attack that actually happened as part of the the attack on the NHS as well as uh, many other services that happened in the UK. Marcus was the guy who actually stepped up and didn't stop it happening, but dramatically reduced the flow and the impact of of the um, the the problem that was actually happening there. So this guy kind of stepped up, saved us generally uh and now he's being put on sort of various different terms for problems that it kind of feels like he probably did have a hand in but i I don't know it just sort of feels like he stepped up and now they've kind of looked into him a little bit more and being prosecuted on this one i love the line his bail conditions means that he can't access the internet which is a problem for him It's a problem for, for anybody. It um, it's punishment for a three-year-old, isn't it? That's not. Uh, <laughs> what? What? Uh, forgive me. What? What has he been arrested for doing in the US? Presumably not stopping the NHS hack. Well, because because um, as, as many and and Chris, you've spoken to sort of many sort of ethical hackers in the past, but um, you know, Marcus actually were, is a hacker. You know, right. he, as part of what his day-to-day uh, job actually is. You know, he is there to expose. He, he the malware, malware Trojan that was taking bank passwords and account details. Was, yeah. was his point, presumably his point was to Just prove... Just to show he could do it. Yeah, exactly. But, 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 well, is it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the question here anyway, isn't it? But, but I think if you look at... If you look at what he's doing, he he has stated that he was exposing vulnerabilities for them to, in order to fix those things. You know, he works for a cybersecurity company in America. He's not he's not really looking to profit from these things. And actually, the cybersecurity company in itself was actually there to expose these type of things for us. You know, as a almost like a bounty hunter. You know, so it's a bit like the white hat. Yeah, very, idea, very much yeah, on the, okay. the white hat side of the, the sort of um, cyber side of I things. I think it's more of a grey hat. 
the puns are going to thick and fast at this point. I, I, I think it's very sad. I also think it opens up a whole can of worms about what is hacking, what is ethical hacking. You know, I, I know for a fact that some large financial services organizations employ their own hackers to exploit their own vulnerabilities and other people's. So where 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 is that line drawn and how do you decide who gets to draw the line? Is well, it- this is why uh, humanities degrees will always be important. While STEM will teach you how to hack, uh, a humanities degree will make you think about whether you should hack. <laughs> I think there's a Jurassic Park reference in there somewhere about yes, uh, yes. stopping to figure out if we should, not just if we could. Just because right? we can. Yeah, yeah, there, there, all, there are always Jurassic Park re- references when I'm around. Indeed. All of my intelligence comes from that. Until you work for a bank talking about dinosaurs. Indeed. And on that note, that wraps up another fine edition of the new show from Fintech Insider. Um, don't forget that you can now head over to Fintech Insider News to read more about the stories that we've just discussed and many, many more. Thanks very much to our guests. So thank you very much for coming back, Sarah. Any time. Uh, hopefully you'll be coming back soon, Andy, as well. I hope so, too, if I'm invited. You absolutely will be. And Samir, thank you very much for coming in as well. Pleasure. And Chris, thanks for coming back. Hopefully uh, it won't take a 36-country round-trip tour for you to, uh, to come back next time. Uh, I'm going to the moon next. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and just so we sort of go around the table, so uh, where can our listeners hear a little bit more about you, Sarah? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Kashansky. Andy, where can people find you? I wasn't ready for this one, but I guess it's LinkedIn if anyone really wants to talk you to me. You did also just, you know, say that you had an email address that people could send ideas to. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Andy at... No, we Ellis at rbs.com. Nice. And Samit? Uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm assuming they can pick up my, my the spelling of my rather difficult last name off your website. Fantastic. We'll put all of that in the show notes for you guys. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. Thanks for listening, guys. Catch you next week. Listener.